Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's do a little bit of review tonight. We are doing pretty much what we would call systematic theology or the foundations of the faith. And we're coinciding with what our children and what our youth are learning. And we've been hanging out in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we saw that God created out of nothing in his sovereignty. He is the the sovereign God. Then we also saw the pattern and the order of creation. And then we talked about how God had ordained work. In chapter 2, what we call actually Adam at that point, a covenant of works where Adam was told that he could not eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. If he ate of it, he would surely die. We'll come back to that tonight. Last week, we talked about marriage, how God ordained and instituted and defines marriage and brought Adam and Eve together. And so now we get to chapter 3 in Genesis. So that's where we're going to be tonight. So if you haven't opened your Bible, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 3. And as you're opening there, I want to remind you of something in American history that maybe you're very familiar with. Um, Most of you are familiar with Benedict Arnold. So what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the name Benedict Arnold? Traitor. He was a traitor. So Benedict Arnold was a general in George Washington's army army during the Revolutionary War. And he worked his way up to be the commander of West Point. And so West Point was strategic during the Revolutionary War because it was right there on the Hudson River. And so as a soldier in the Revolutionary Army, Benedict Arnold had to sign an oath of loyalty to, at that time, what was the fledgling, you know, it wasn't the United States yet, but an, an oath of loyalty to pledge his allegiance to the cause. Now, what he had begun doing was entering into dialogue with a British spy named John Andre. John Andre was a spy for the British Army that was basically, uh, they were exchanging letters back and forth. And the real issue for Benedict Arnold was money. He wanted to get rich. So he started writing code back and forth to Major Andre. And the, the, the plot was to take over West Point. And so basically, he agreed to surrender West Point to the British for 20,000 pounds, which back then was a lot of money. And so the plot was discovered by the Americans. And once Benedict Arnold heard about the fact that he was caught, he fled down the Hudson River on a British warship called the Vulture to avoid being captured by George Washington. And so when you think of the name Benedict Arnold, it's equated with treason, high treason. You turned on your country, you, you basically gave up your country, you were a rebel, you're a turncoat, um, you did this in a calculated way. And so Benedict Arnold is probably America's most famous traitor. Now why do I bring up the issue of being a traitor or committing high treason? treason. When we come to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see the first traitors ever 
in the history of the world, okay? Adam and Eve commit high treason against their creator. They don't turn on their country for millions of dollars, but they turn against their creator for a piece of fruit. A.W. Pink, and if you haven't ever read A.W. Pink, he has a great book called The Sovereignty of God, but he said this about Genesis chapter 3. He said, The third chapter of Genesis is one of the most important in all the Word of God. What had often been said of Genesis as a whole is particularly true of this chapter. It is the seed plot of the Bible. Here are the foundations upon which rest many of the cardinal doctrines of the faith. So over the next few weeks, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And what A.W. Pink says, and I agree with him, is that in Genesis chapter 3, you have a lot of the key cardinals of the Christian faith showing up just in the third chapter of the Bible. So let's just think about what we see in chapter 3. We find out Adam and Eve's fall into sin. We learn about who the devil is and what his schemes are. We here see that man is powerless to walk in righteousness. He can't obey the covenant of works. We see the consequences of sin. And then ultimately see why the world is in the shape that it's in. Everything boils down to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So here's the overarching theme of this passage of scripture that we're going to explore tonight. It's this, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's willful rebellion against God produced dire consequences that profoundly impact every single one of us today. It was willful rebellion and those consequences just weren't for Adam and Eve, they're for us as well. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to Genesis chapter 3 and let's read the account. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and 
I ate. So let's explore this passage of Scripture tonight. Let's just go in depth and see what happens. Let's just first of all explore the temptation itself. And I want you to notice a play on words that Moses does in the original Hebrew language. Look at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we read that and we say that's a beautiful expression of a marriage relationship where a husband and wife come together and there should be no shame, there should be no um, holding back, but it's a play on words when you read chapter 3, verse 1. And I'll tell you what it means here in just a moment. Because chapter 24, and tw- I mean chapter 1, verse 25, the man and his wife are both naked and were not af- ashamed. Now, chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty. Crafty in the Hebrew language sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for naked. And I'll, I'll give you the rhyming in English. Okay? This is how it would have sounded to the original audience. Adam and Eve were nude. The serpent was shrewd. So naked and crafty are very, very similar. And so there's something spiritual going on here in the way that it's worded in that Adam and Eve were caught off guard by this crafty serpent that slithered into the garden. Now let's think about the garden because we looked at this a few weeks ago. The garden, if you go back to chapter 2, the garden was a wonderful place of lushness, of rivers, of gold, Adam and Eve are in perfect fellowship. They're enjoying this one flesh union as a married couple. There's no sin. There's no conflict. It's a glorious understanding. Everything about the garden is wonderful, except for there's one prohibition. What's the one thing they can't do? Can't eat of the knowledge of the tree. I mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, here's a theological question that I don't have the answer to. How did the serpent get there? Who allowed the serpent in to the garden? The Bible doesn't tell us. The only answer I have is that God allowed it to happen. But I want you to think about something for a moment. If Adam was called, go back to chapter 2. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Adam was to protect and keep the garden. This is my personal opinion, but I think Adam was not vigilant in protecting the garden from intruders coming in. He should have been on the lookout for Satan as he was working and cultivating the garden. Now, the serpent talked to Eve. Now, it says it was the serpent. It doesn't come right out and say that it is Satan, but we know that it is, okay? This snake is none other than the enemy of our souls, the devil 
himself. And what does the Bible say about the devil? So let's just kind of look at what the Bible says about the tactics of the devil. Because there's a lot that the Bible says. This is the first time he shows up on the scene in the form of a serpent. And so not only is he like in the form of a serpent, but 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A roaring lion looking to devour you. Now it's very important. The Hebrew word Satan means adversary or enemy. The word devil means slanderer. So he's the one who accuses, who lies, who attacks. And then we also know that the, the serpent hears the devil because in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, John sees that the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So he's called a lion. He's called an ancient serpent. He's called the great red dragon. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. He, he's a liar. John 8, listen to what Jesus says about Satan. He says, you, he's talking to the Pharisees here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies so he's a serpent he's a dragon he's the devil he's the slanderer he's satan he's a liar he's the father of lies he's a roaring lion first john 3 8 says this about the devil Whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All right, let's look at just a few more here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world. Okay, this is talking about Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So he's, he's blinding unbelievers. He sinned from the beginning. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. He's the ancient serpent. He's the great red dragon. And then Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil is tricky. He's crafty. He's shrewd. He has schemes. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he speaks. Yes, Brent. Yeah, we'll get to some of these later on. Yeah. So the serpent speaks. And I want you to notice the very first thing he says. It's the very first question mark in the Bible. What's his tactic? What's his ploy? What's his scheme? We are going to see four 
tactics or four schemes or four tricks that the devil attempts to perpetrate on Eve. So here's the first. Number one, he questions God's authoritative word. Do you notice what is said there? In verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a question. Did God really say that? He's trying to catch Eve off guard. Are you sure you heard God right? Now, did God say that? Yes. Go back to chapter 2. God is very clear. Go back to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man. Remember I said a few weeks ago, that's the first command in the Bible. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is God clear there? Is there any ambiguity? God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So what does Satan do? Did God really say? Notice this change in language too. Satan doesn't call him the Lord God, but calls him God. Now you may think, well, that's not a big deal. Remember the word L-O-R-D in all caps is the word Yahweh, and it's the covenant name of God. This is Satan can't bring himself to say the name of God, the, the Lord. So he can't even bring himself to call him the Lord God. He just uses the generic name for God. Did God say? So the tactic from the very beginning is to twist, question, distort God's word. And notice that he speaks as a seasoned theologian. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Satan probably knows more of the Bible than most of us here. He's been around a long time. But he can twist it. Most false teachers that quote-unquote come in the name of Christ are not going to come with the book of Satan. Okay? They're not going to come with the Satanic Bible. They're going to use what the Bible says, but they're going to twist it. Satan works that way. Notice how he, he, he basically says, are you sure you heard God right? Did God really say that? You sure you heard him? What did Satan do to Jesus 40 days in the wilderness? He quoted God's word to him, but he twisted it and he misapplied it. So whenever you begin to question God's word, or question God's authority in his word. Or you stand as an authority above the Bible. And you pick and choose which parts you want to believe. You are following the lie of Satan. It's a house of cards. Okay. Every single doctrine of the Christian faith. Comes falling down. If you attack the Bible first. That's why it's always an attack on the scriptures. How do we know who God is? From the scriptures. How do we know what salvation is? From the scriptures. How do we know who Jesus is? From the scriptures. So if the attack is always on God's word, every other thing will fall like a house of cards, like dominoes. And Satan goes straight for God's word. Did you hear him correctly? 
Eve. And you see this ploy today. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. We, we've talked about progressive Christianity here for a few years. Liberal progressive Christianity. Churches, denominations, people that are denying the faith. People that are abandoning the truths of the faith. And you know how it starts? Did God really say that? So let me give you some examples of what's happening today. That's a questioning God's word. Did God really say that there's a sacred definition of marriage that can't be altered? We looked at that last week. Did God really say that Jesus is the only way? You'll hear people say today, well, he's, he's a good way. He's one of many ways. He's the best way. No, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Did God really say there's a literal hell? I think it's metaphorical. Hell is what we are experiencing here on earth. I, 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 the God I worship would never send anybody to hell. That just sounds too mean. Did God really say that you must repent and trust in Christ or face judgment? You mean you really are calling me to repent? Did God really say it is against his law to have premarital sex? Did God really say that homosexual behavior is sinful? Did God really say these things? Are you sure you heard him right? This is the very first ploy of the devil, and it's to get people to doubt God's word, to twist God's word, to put a question mark in there. Because what are you hearing today? Let me just give you the example that you hear today, especially on the issue of sexual ethics. What people will say, what progressive Christians will say is this. The Jewish people that wrote thousands of years ago were not enlightened as we are today, and they were only going off their cultural influences and the information they had at the time and their understanding of God at the time. And so that's all they knew. So what they wrote was a product of their own time. But we've evolved, we've been enlightened, we understand that these things are archaic, they're old-fashioned, and so we've, we've come up with a new interpretation that says these things are okay because we've redefined God and we've redefined the Bible and what they believed back then was just, they, they were, they were um, unenlightened. They didn't have all the information the way we have today. Okay. So how do you respond to that? What you need to say is there's a fixed meaning in the Bible that doesn't change over time. What God said thousands of years ago holds true today. And so Satan's very ploy from the beginning with Eve is a question mark. Did God really say that? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So are you falling for this today? Are you being captive to the spirit of this age under the influence of Satan? And are you standing in judgment over the Bible? Or are you submitting under its authority? You know, I 
I'm very concerned when I hear people stand in judgment over the Bible. And what do I mean by that? They pick and choose which parts of the Bible they want to believe. I'm the authority. I know what I want to believe. Here's, my, here's what I want to believe, and, and you're the authority over it. Well, what happens if somebody down the street has a different interpretation? Well, that's their interpretation. This is my interpretation. We all have different interpretations. It, then it becomes like you make the meaning of the Bible whatever you want it to mean. You're the authority over it as opposed to submitting to it as God's word. It would be kind of like this. I used to fly a lot back in my 20s when I was... Um, I worked for a company that did market research for like King Supers and Kroger. Um, and so I had to fly to Phoenix a lot from Colorado Springs to Phoenix every week. <laughs> I had to get up at 6 a.m., get to the airport, fly to Phoenix, then fly back. And I remember one time we were flying into um, Colorado Springs and it was really, really foggy. It was really, really bad. And so they made us land up in Denver we had to get in on a bus and then drive in a bus all the way back down to Colorado Springs. But what would happen if we were about ready to land in Colorado Springs and um, all these planes were coming in and um, basically the pilot thinks he can land on the runway in the fog. And air traffic control says, you, you, what are you doing? You can't land. You've got you've to stay up there in a pattern until we can tell you to land. No, I want to land now. I think I can do it. Air traffic controllers would be like, what? You, you can't do that. It's not safe. You can't just do what you want to do. So the pilot's basically saying, well, I'm just going to make up the rules and I'm going to land how I want to land. And what does the air traffic controller say? It's not up for discussion. You cannot land. It's unsafe. It's against the law. You can't make up the rules. I'm preventing you from landing. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and land anyway. Okay, that's the attitude a lot of people have towards the Bible. Guys, the air traffic controller is saying, this is what the word says. And people are like, well, I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I'll do whatever I want to do. Okay? So that's the first tactic. So we're under the tactics of Satan. The first one is to question God's word. Okay, the second tactic is still a question. This is to question God's bountiful goodness. Okay, so what does he do? He tempts Eve to think that God may not be good, and generous, and then he can't be trusted. God must be holding you back from pleasure. Do you see what the tactic is there? So he said, this is still in verse 2, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Okay, so what's he doing there in twisting God's word is he's, he's putting a little seed of doubt into Eve's mind that God must be, not be good. God's holding back on you. You mean there's a tree you can't touch? God must be stingy. God must not be letting you have maximum pleasure. For him to withhold that one tree from you, God's not being very good. Why would he withhold that one tree from you? If you want to have maximum pleasure, if, you, if you're in this perfect environment, why is, he, why is he giving you one tree you can't touch? Now let's think about the prohibition. What did God say back in chapter 2? So let's go back to chapter 2. Look at verse 16. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, does that sound like God's being stingy? What's God saying? You have free reign of every tree in this garden. You can have maximum enjoyment of this garden. Everything is here for your enjoyment. All the lushness, all the fruit, all the trees. I'm not holding anything back from you. You're free. Notice the word. You're free to eat except for one tree. Now that doesn't sound stingy to me for God to say you're free to have access to everything except for one. But here's the thing. God is giving them boundaries. He created us to have passion and joy and to enjoy. He said, you're free to enjoy. You're free to eat. But that joy is to be found in him alone and through obedience to his law. Here's the point. For Adam and Eve, the, tr- the only way they're truly going to be blessed is when they live on God's terms. So God is not withholding pleasure or withholding things from Adam and Eve. He said, you're free to eat of all these things. Enjoy. But enjoy it on my terms. I'm giving you one prohibition. And Satan comes along and says, man, God must be stingy. God's unfair. God's holding you back from experiencing maximum pleasure. Why, why, why would God withhold that one tree from you? He must not be good. He must not be trustworthy. You need to question not only his word, but question his goodness. Why would God hold that back from you? So it's not only questioning God's word, but questioning God's goodness. Can't trust his word, and you can't trust his goodness. And again, let me ask the question, do you fall for this ploy today? Do you fall for the lie that God is not good and generous and he's trying to hold you back from pleasure? And all that God wants to do is force rules down your throat so you can live a stifled, hampered existence of bondage where you can't experience true freedom. God has given us everything to enjoy within his framework and his boundary and he's good. So the first thing that we see Satan do in his ploy is to question God's word. Did God really say? Second thing we see Satan do is can can you trust God to be good? He must be holding back from you by preventing you from eating from this tree. Now let's look at the third thing. The third ploy. We're still under the temptation here. He seduces them with pride to be like God. So look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be what? Like God. Now, there's a difference between being created in the image of God as an image bearer, the sovereign potter creating the clay. There's a difference between us being an image bearer and then being like God. Do you realize that was Satan's sin that caused him to fall from his position? He wanted to be like God. Now, how do you know that? Well, most scholars believe that Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, tells us about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Now, if you have a King James Version, I'm not sure exactly where they got this, but this is where the term Lucifer comes from. 
How you've fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. That, that's where they get the word Lucifer, if you have a King James Version. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, what did you say in your heart? I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Most scholars believe this is what Satan, who was Lucifer when he was the highest of angels, had this attitude of pride that said, I want to be not just like God, but higher than God. I'll make myself like the most high God. So if this is what Satan was tempted with when he fell, this is the ploy he's going to use to Adam and Eve, the first two creation, the first two people. You, you can be like God. It was his diabolical aspiration to be like God, so he tempts them to say, you can be like God. And the real root issue of this is pride. It's not enough to be a creature created in God's image. You have to be like God. Pride. Let's talk about pride. Let me give you some voices from history, some famous preachers, what they've said about pride. John Stott said this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is the greatest enemy. Jonathan Edwards said this about pride. He said, pride is the worst viper that's in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. Pride. And then I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He called it a brainless thing, the maddest thing that can exist. Pride. So number one, I'm going to question God's word. Number two, Satan questions God's goodness. Number three, he tempts them to be like God. He goes straight to the heart of pride. And then fourth, this is where he just tells a bald-faced lie. He tells them a bald-faced lie that there are no dire consequences to sin. Notice the lie he says in verse four. Did you catch it? Eve says in verse three, God said... I did hear him. He said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You'll not surely die. Now go back to chapter 2, verse 17. It's funny because in my Bible, they're side by side with the columns. So I, I go back and look. Chapter 2, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, it, eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did God say? You shall surely, surely die. What does Satan say in verse 4? You will not surely die. So it's a lie. There are no consequences. If you eat of the tree, you're not going to really die. It's, it's not that big of a deal. God's being a little extreme with the commands there. There are no consequences to sin. One of the most effective ways the devil tempts us as believers is to make us foolishly think there are no consequences to our sins. What does he do? He tries to hide the outcome. He wants us to experience the pleasure in the here and now. To take the bait. To indulge in sin and worry about the fallout later. 
It's only 15 minutes of pleasure. It's going to be fun until you get the girl pregnant or you get an STD. Or I'm going to go ahead and gossip. And next thing you know, you've assassinated a person's character. I'm just going to go out and have fun with my friends. Next thing you know, you get drunk and you get in a car accident. Satan makes you think, have pleasure right now. There's no consequences. You're not going to die, Eve. God's just joking with you. God's being extreme. The, the consequences, you're not going to die. Just eat the fruit. As a matter of fact, if you eat the fruit, it'll open your eyes. You're not going to die. That's the lie of Satan. And Paul says it this way in Galatians 6, 7-8. through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will... From the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. All right. That is the temptation, okay? The four ploys, the temptation. Now, let's secondly explore the transgression. We've seen the temptation. Let's look at the transgression. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. So we see like three aspects here of how, how this impacted Eve. So look at verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it looked good. It looked good. It was a delight to the eyes. It was captivating. And the tree was desired to make one wise so not only does think about this this just popped into my mind how many times do you think eve walked by that tree and what did she think i better not touch it i better not eat of it because god told me but then the moment satan comes along what does he say that's a wonderful tree and what does she look at she's like wow it does look nice. It does look appetizing. This is going to make me like God. Wow, I never noticed that before. Now I, now I see how captivating, how alluring, how, how mesmerizing this tree really is. Maybe I should get closer to the tree. And that's the ploy of Satan. And, and John kind of echoes this. 1 John two fifteen through 17 Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, okay, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, this is Eve's downfall. She sees it with her eyes. She's captivated. And notice what happens. Verse 6, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
Who ate the fruit first? It's very important. Eve. Eve was tempted. But who was right there next to her? Adam. Now, we're going to explain this because Paul does a little bit of explanation in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11.3 I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul does affirm that the serpent deceived Eve with, her, with, with cunning. Then in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an agent, angel of light. Okay, here's where theology comes into play. Who took of the fruit? First, Eve. But who's held accountable for it? Adam. Adam is responsible for this rebellion. Eve sinned first. She was deceived by Satan. But Adam sinned in rebellion and was there all the time. He did not protect his wife from the serpent and cast the serpent out of the garden. Here's the problem from the very beginning. Did you catch what it said there? Read your Bible carefully. Read it carefully. Read the end of verse, the middle of verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was what? With her. He was with her the whole time. Now, what should he have done as a good husband? First of all, he should have never let the snake in the garden. And when the snake came and tried to encroach upon his wife, he should have rebuked the snake, cast the snake out of the garden, and stood as a buffer to protect his wife. So from the very beginning, Adam is being passive here as a husband. He's not standing up and protecting his wife. He's letting her be seduced by another man, if you will. Not a man, but the serpent. And say, now, Let's falsely assume that Adam was the first one who sinned. He wasn't. Eve was. But what could Eve plead? What could have Eve plead if, plead, pled if Adam was the first one that sinned and then Adam gave her the fruit? What could she have said? Well, she could have said to God, well, you know what? You created Adam first and created me second. I'm just following his lead. I'm just following his lead. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. He's the spiritual head of the family. He took the fruit. I'm following his lead. And so I'm not culpable. Okay. Now, Eve would be held accountable for her sin. But in this text, in the way Paul describes it in the New Testament, Eve is the one who is seduced and tempted and deceived, not Adam. So she's the one that's deceived. <clears throat> Adam should have been protecting his vulnerable wife from the attack of the devil and should have driven him out of the garden. I think I already said this, but we'll say it again because it's on the, the screen here. Adam is passive in his spiritual leadership. He was not deceived by the serpent. He willfully and consciously rebelled against God's direct 
command. Do you ever see a dialogue between Adam and Eve? Does Adam ever say, Eve, we probably do think twice about this. Remember what God said? What does Adam do? Okay, I'll take the fruit. I mean, he just takes the fruit from her. Doesn't even question. Now, here's where the rest of the Bible comes into play. Eve was seduced. She sinned first. But we never, ever in the rest of the Bible see Eve being blamed for bringing sin into the world. The rest of the Bible lays it squarely on Adam's shoulders as the one who's the primary culprit. And we'll talk a lot more about this next week because the first Adam failed and Jesus as the second Adam succeeded. So you have two men, the first man and then the ultimate and final man. But 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says, For as by one man, doesn't say Eve, by his one man, Adam, came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We'll talk a lot more next week about how Adam is our federal representative and how his sin is cause for problems for all of us. But I want you to notice, what's the immediate consequences of their treason? What do they do? What's the immediate consequences? So look there. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay. What's, the, what's the significance of sewing fig leaves? They know there's something wrong. They know they've sinned. They know they're naked. So what do they do? When they sew fig leaves, this is the first attempt at man-made religion. I'm going to try to fix my guilt. I'm going to try to fix my, my shame by doing something in my own power to cover myself up. That's a natural human tendency. When you sin, you want to hide. You want to fix it. You want to, to, to try to somehow cover up your sin in your own power, in your own ingenuity. I'm going to sew fig leaves. I've got to cover up this nakedness. And this... Guilt leads to shame. Now, remember, before the fall, go back up to chapter 1, verse 25. The man and his wife are both naked, and they were what? Not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no fear. There's this oneness. There's this beautiful union between husband and wife where they're sharing this sexual intimacy with no conflict, no shame. But notice what it says there. They knew that they were naked. Now, here's the point. I'm going to get a little graphic here, but we're all adults. Adam and Eve had seen each other naked for, for a long time, or however long before the fall, right? So seeing each other naked wasn't a big deal. But all of a sudden, after they fell, what happened? They felt the need to, what? Cover themselves from each other. So they're feeling shame amongst each other. And they're hiding. They're hiding. We see alienation and hiding. And that they no longer walked with God, but hid from Him. Notice what it says there. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So do you see what's going on here? 
They're hiding themselves from each other by sowing the fig leaves because they're ashamed. And they're hiding themselves from God. So there's an interpersonal shame and there's a creature to God shame that's happening in the fall. And notice what it says, God walked in the cool of the garden. Now, this is an assumption. We don't know exactly from the text, but the assumption is, is that Adam and Eve probably walked with God before the fall. They had an intimate, close relationship with God in the garden. Walking with God in the Bible is, is synonymous with having a relationship with God. Are they walking with God here? No, they're hiding from God. That fellowship with God's been fractured. They're hiding. They're alienated. They're guilty. They're shameful. And how do they deal with sin? Two things. Sow fig leaves and hide. And that's the, that's the human default when you sin. I've got to fix the problem and I'm going to hide. I'm shameful. I'm guilty. I've got to fix the problem. So people deep down in their souls know that they are guilty before God. They know things aren't right. And so instead of trusting in Christ, they try to do all these man-made attempts to cover their shame, guilt, and fear. So think about how that happens today. People know. Here's my point. People know. They have a conscience that is pricked from time to time. Non-believers, they know that what they're doing is wrong. Deep down in their hearts. So how do they deal with it? Well, they don't deal with it by trusting in Jesus to cover their sins. What they do is they try to fix the problem. Now, this could be organized religion. It could be trying to be religious. It could be I'm trying to be spiritual. Uh, it could be anything. Everyone sows fig leaves and tries to deal with sin in their own power. And it only compounds the guilt and the alienation. So we've seen the temptation tonight and under that heading we've seen the four ploys of satan we've seen the transgression that they actually took the fruit and they were guilty they were ashamed they hid but the third big thing i want us to see and it's another t word because i got to have them all start with the same letter as a good pastor with alliteration the trial i'm going to call this a trial now why is this called a trial we almost have somewhat of what's called a courtroom scene here. God is the judge. And he's calling Adam and Eve out into the courtroom to answer for their crimes. And it's not as if God didn't know what happened. Okay, because you might look at this. Some people that deny God's sovereignty look at here and say, God didn't know what happened because he's asking them questions. So look at, look at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now does that, okay. Does God not know where Adam is? Why do you think God is calling to him, where are you? He's bringing them on trial to answer publicly for their treason. What else do we see result from sin? We see it in verse 10. How does, how does, how does Adam answer God? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden... And I was what? Afraid. I was afraid. Verse 10, you see it in full force. Fear. Fear. Before Adam sinned, he had peace with God. He had security with God. 
He had confidence in God. But now, as a result of his sin, he not only feels shame, he not only feels guilt, but he's fearful. I am afraid. No one had to tell Adam he sinned. Because what does God say? Who told you? Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? No one had to tell Adam he sinned. He knew it immediately. Because his conscience was pricked and he knew that he had transgressed God's law. So what Adam experienced personally, Adam and Eve personally, from this transgression is fear, guilt, shame, and trying to fix things in their own power by sowing fig leaves and hiding from God. God calls them out of the bushes into the public arena, into the courtroom, and God says, where are you? Not because he didn't know where they were, because he wanted them to face up to their crime. And Adam says, I was afraid, so I hid. Now, one of the other things you see here, the biggest things we see is the blame game. The shifting of accountability. It actually gets kind of funny here what ends up happening. Notice the blame game. Okay, look at verse 12. So God asked the question, who told you that you were naked? And here's the ultimate question. Have, <coughs> excuse me, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now God knew that, right? He knew they had done that. He's asking the question to prick Adam's conscience so he comes clean and says, yes, it was me. I sinned. I did it. God, I come clean. I can't hide from you. I sinned against you. But notice what does he say? Verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What's he saying? Hey, it's not my fault. It's this woman you gave me. I was doing fine until you created her to... Whoa. I was doing fine until you created her to come live with me. Basically what Adam's saying is, it's not my fault. She made me do it. She enticed me. She was a temptress. It was all her fault. And God, it's your fault too because you gave her to me. You married us. It's your fault. So it's not my fault, God. It's her fault and it's your fault. But it's not my fault. The woman you gave me tempted me. That's what sin does, doesn't it? Sin makes us so blind to say, it's not my fault. It deludes us into shifting blame and not taking personal accountability or owning up to our sin. You see the blame right there. The woman you gave me, God, it's your fault for giving her to me. She enticed me. It's her fault. It's not my fault, God. I'm not accountable for this. Well, when, remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet came to him and said, you're the man. Um, David writes Psalm 32 and, and Psalm 51, but in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay, that passage of scripture, this is not in your notes, but I want to just give you three words for sin in the Hebrew language that, are, that show up in that verse. There are three words in the Old Testament that define sin. So if you look at that, so look at, look at on your sheet or look on the screen, Psalm 32.5, I acknowledge my sin, that's one word. I did not cover my iniquity, that's another word. 
I will confess my transgressions. That's another one. Okay, so there's three words. Sin, iniquity, transgressions. Okay, sin, the word sin, basically is where you get the whole idea of shooting an arrow and missing the mark. You're, you're, you're not even anywhere close to obeying God's law. You, you're, you're, you're way off course. You're not even hitting the target. You're missing the mark. That's what the word sin means. You're falling short. The word transgression is really what happens here with Adam and Eve. It means to overstep a boundary, to trespass, to go against, to rebel. It's the idea of rebelling against authority. You're transgressing, you're trespassing, you're rebelling. And the word iniquity talks more about your nature. It means perverted or corrupt or depraved. And so all of these things Adam did... He missed the mark, he rebelled, and it brought him into a state of iniquity. And he wasn't willing to confess it. He blamed. God, it's your fault for giving me this woman, and it's her fault for enticing me. She gave me the fruit and ate. It's, but it's not my fault. Okay, is Eve any better? Basically, Eve's argument is the devil made me do it. <laughs> okay, so and look at verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what's this that you've done? Now, does it mean God doesn't know? Again, it's a trial, a courtroom. He's, he's getting them to confess their sin. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. She blames the serpent as the deceiver. The devil made her do it. So she shifts the blame. So neither one of them are taking responsibility for their sin. Adam says, it's your fault, God, for giving me her. It's her fault for de deceiving me. And she says, it's the devil's fault. He made me do it. But neither one does Adam stand up and say, it's my fault, I did it. And Eve doesn't stand up and say, it's my fault, I did it. We are responsible. We're held accountable. And here's the tragic irony. The, the tragic irony of this entire treason is that in their ultimate pride and desire to be like God, remember, I want to be like God. I want to be free from his restraints. I want, to, I want to take that one tree. What happened? What did it produce? Did they become like God? Were they free? No, it only produced guilt, alienation, fear, and bondage. The freedom they desired, they got the exact opposite. What are they thinking the whole time? If I eat of that tree, I'll be free. I'll be free of God's restraints. I'll be like God. It'll be awesome. And what happened? The exact opposite. They weren't free. They're now in bondage. They're guilt-ridden. They're alienated. They're fearful. They transgress the covenant that God gave them in the covenant of works. Adam specifically. Hosea 6, 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. They were traitors. They transgressed. They rebelled. And what was the covenant? The covenant was back in verse 16 and 17. The covenant of works where God says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. They broke that covenant. And what we'll see next week are the, are, are the consequences of this. Now, this is not good news. There's no gospel here tonight, okay? So I, I hate to leave you like, we're not going to get to the gospel because every, every time I preach on Sunday mornings, I want to give you the gospel. But we're going to get to that next week. And I'm going to give you a preview. Because next, I want to leave you with some good news tonight.
Because next week, we're going to see what are the consequences of the fall, not just for Adam and Eve personally, we've seen tonight, but what are the ramifications of their sin for all of us? Because what they did did not just impact them, it impacts all of us. And Paul specifically addresses that in Romans chapter 5. So let me give you a preview of where we're going next week because we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 5 next week. But in Romans chapter 5, so again, you'll come next week and we'll talk about this. In Romans chapter 5, there is a comparison between what Adam did and what Christ did. Adam did these things as the one man. Christ came and did what Adam couldn't do as the one man. So there's this comparison. And so Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass, whose trespass? Adam's. What did it lead to? And we'll get into more detail about this next week. It led to condemnation for all. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's Jesus. For as by one man's disobedience, as Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what Adam did in the garden... Jesus came as the second Adam and undid in his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so here's what we have to understand. If you deny a literal Adam and Eve, some people say they were just kind of allegorical features or allegorical people, that there's like this hominid race of, you know, um, what are they called, Cro-Magnon man or, um, I don't know, cavemen or whatever, but there's some people that deny the, the literal Adam and Eve. If you deny that there's no literal Adam and Eve, and you deny that they literally sinned, you deny Jesus as the second Adam and all of salvation. You and I cannot be saved unless Adam actually sinned. And so next week we're going to talk about the impact that Adam's sin had on all of us. And there's different views out there, some heretical and some biblical of, of what his sin has, has done to all of us. So that's what I've got tonight. Unless, are there any questions or comments or side remarks? And this, I'm sorry about this microphone. This is a, a cheap microphone. We're waiting to get the other microphone fixed so it keeps popping in and out. Are there any questions you guys have? Are there any on Facebook maybe that somebody can... There's none. Is it a comment? Is it a snide remark? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, the King James is Vulgate. Yeah. Drew McLeod? Okay. He's in Aust he's in New Zealand. Yeah. I think Drew, if you're watching this, I think you're still in New Zealand. And um, thanks for commenting on that. He's a podcast listener, and yeah, yeah. Any other comments about, yes, Brent? Is there merit in Ezekiel 28? Well, if I'm going to have a comment on the merit of something, I need to know what Ezekiel 28 says. So let's, can you give me the exact address and phone number? It's not out of second condominiums? Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, you were, were you here when I, taught, when I gave the Isaiah passage? Were you in here when I did the Isaiah, or did you step out? 
Okay, yeah, I gave the Isaiah passage where it talked about how Satan wanted to be like God, but this is a parallel passage. So let's read this. I did, yeah, so if you guys remember, the passage that she was referring to, Janae, that, that Drew was recur- referring to, was where it talks about, oh, son of the morning day star. Um, most scholars believe that was Satan before his fall. But here in, in Ezekiel 28, he's called the king of Tyre. But um, some people believe that's kind of a metaphorical way of of talking about Satan. So let's look at verse 11. Uh, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now let's stop right there. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Who, Who can that be said of? Was the king of Tyre in Eden, the garden of God? No. So most scholars believe this is indeed talking about Satan. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to the feast their eyes on you and on and on and on that language sounds a lot like the guardian cherub cherubim which is an angelic being so what most scholars would say and to agree with you brent that's a good passage of scripture to bring up this was satan's he was a crowning high order angelic beautiful creation of god but he had pride in his heart and he transgressed and so God cast him to the ground. So there are two Old Testament passages, that Isaiah passage I gave earlier and this Ezekiel, and probably for the sake of time I didn't put both of them in there, but I probably should have, that give evidence that most scholars over the years would say those two Old Testament passages allude to Satan pre-fall, his fall. Because at some point, Satan had to fall before he could tempt Adam and Eve as the serpent. So does everybody understand that passage? So that's, a, that's, a good word, that's a good passage to go to, Brent, to kind of... There's a lot of imagery there about cherub, guardian cherub, and being in the garden, and yeah. Any other comments or questions? I know this is not a very um, uplifting, it's like, oh wow, sin came into the world and guilt and alienation and go well, be well fed and blessed with that good news tonight. Um, next week, we're going to get to the most important passage in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. Well, probably the most important passage in the book of Genesis next week. And I'll give you a hint. It's Genesis 3.15. And we'll talk a lot about that next week. All right, any other comments, questions? 
this is your time to stump the pastor. It can be on anything. There's some people that wanted to have a stump the pastor night. Like they're like, let's just have Pastor Sean come in the sanctuary and we'll just barrage him with questions. I'm all for it, but um, you guys have, I think, were you there? Oh, no, it wasn't your group. It was the other group. Our Thursday night, your group, our Thursday night group said you guys wanted to do that, to stump the pastor night. So. All right. Well, let's pray. You guys good? Father, thank you for this time that we can gather tonight to look at your word. And, and Lord, we do know that um, your word's very clear in what you had commanded Adam and Eve. And Satan is very real. He is an enemy. He is an adversary. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's a creature just like we are. And so, Lord, we can resist him. We can stand firm in our faith, and he will flee from us. And so, Lord, help us to resist the devil. Give us the power to do that. Help us to not shift blame when we sin, but to own up to our sin and confess it. And Lord, help us just to be, um, be always confessing our sin and be quick to confess. And so Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture. Help us next week to come prepared to hear the gospel announcement of how you immediately dealt with Adam and Eve's sin and shame. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.